Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond the solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. My name's Hannah Wakeford, and I'm Geoconi Fellow at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, studying the characterization of exoplanet atmospheres. My name's Hugh Osborne, and I am I'm a postdoc at the Laboratoire d'Astrophysique de Marseille, working on transiting exoplanets and the Plato ESA mission. And my name is Andrew Rushby. I'm a postdoc at NASA's Ames Research Center, Northern California, where I study the early climate of the Earth and planetary habitability. Coming up on the show today, Andrew's going to be talking about whether life can hop between planets. I am going to be talking a bit about phase curves of exoplanets and what that means. Hannah's going to cover all of the news over the last month, and then I'm going to adopt an interesting long period planet. But first, I thought we'd just have a little chat. So how are we all doing? How's your month been, Hannah? As, as always, busy. That seems to be the way. Every Monday you start and you're just like, okay, fresh week, and then you get filled up with meetings. So that tends to be all of my time. But it's James Webb planning at the moment. That's really kind of full throttle now, getting ideas together and trying to sort out what it is we want to use James Webb for. Are people worried about the launch? Because the last Ariane 5 launch didn't go quite as expected. Did it not? I thought they were the only one with the perfect track record. Yeah, the last one that they they did some software cock up and uh, and it went on the wrong orbit. So um, I think there's a little bit more fear there. But well, I, I thought the I thought the issue with the launch was um, was conflicts with Bepi Colombo, the, the JAXA mission to Mercury, right? I thought there yeah, was like Bepi a launch. Colombo. Bepi Colombo, great name, great name. We should probably cover that at some point. <laughs> I don't know much about this mission at all, but I thought there was some um, delay with that and that needed to go first because of the Mercury Yeah, so James insertion. Webb's now scheduled for spring of 2019. Uh, is going to go sometime later this year, I think October, November. The window that they have for that launch because of the orbits uh, is much, much shorter. So that kind of got a bit of a higher priority. But also they're doing different tests and stuff on James Webb. So there's a couple of reasons for delays and stuff i mean the test test mission has been delayed as well hasn't it so there's there always seems to be just delays and delays on these kinds of missions is it still in goddard where you are no no uh it left goddard ages ago it left goddard when i left goddard so back in may um we spent all of our time growing up together at Goddard. Um, it went to Texas and then it just got to California, actually, uh, last week, I believe. That's oh, a good road trip. Uh, highly recommended, you know, that kind of <laughs> guess, that trajectory it will across end America. up in the Amazon as well. So. Yeah, and then it's, uh, it's going to head out down and through uh, the Panama Canal, which is terrifying, in my opinion. Like, that's really? crazy. It's Isn't the going to space bit more terrifying? (laughs) It's a really narrow, hard to navigate canal with, I think, what, over 20 or something locks. And yeah, it's just a, it's kind of crazy to think that this ginormous telescope is just going to sit on a barge. It just reminds me of Birmingham. Like that, I'm just like, imagine James (laughs) Webb going through the locks in Birmingham. It's just weird to me, canals. (laughs) I have been to Birmingham a lot and the Panama Canal once, and I can tell you they are nothing alike. Fair enough. <laughs> then I need to go to the Panama Canal. <laughs> yeah, it was a strange, a strange comparison, Hanno, if, if I'm honest. 
Well, but, uh, that, the only thing I know about canals is the ones in England and their tiny, ridiculous true. things with these old school locks and it's just that's what my brain goes to I'm recreational like, no, please waterways. don't do that to my telescope being pulled by horses as well <laughs> so less old school so that's cool yeah well this telescope has seen a lot of the world already although it probably hasn't seen any of it technically but you know it's been around yes, it's not allowed outside no not allowed and rightly so <laughs> how's your month been andrew i'm pretty good we're working um well, I'm focusing or trying to focus this month on the uh, National Academy's call for the exoplanet um, uh, exoplanet study. So this is probably maybe quite a, a NASA-centric thing or America-centric thing, but uh, the National Academies of Science have uh, are looking into um, uh, an exoplanet science strategy. Um, and what this means is it's kind of this independent committee um, that they then ask for white papers, so kind of policy papers or idea or hypothesis papers um, as input for the upcoming decadal survey, which uh, here in NASA is a big is a big deal. You know, they set out the priorities and the goals for the next 10 years and each of the different divisions gets, um, you know, its own decadal. Um, so it's going to be looking at you know the the goals and the objectives of 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 all the stuff of all the instruments that we talk about in exocast all the time you know jwst tess and maybe w first but i'm sure we'll get to that in the news a bit later um so the striking of heads and noddings are we going to talk about it in the news we'll talk about I it i forgot you know i forgot to put that in the news i really was focusing on papers and how many re- just the sheer number of things that we have to cover every month you've got half an hour so get writing on that segment oh god <laughs> well the thing is you know it's a bit up in the air there's there has been a lot of chat about the potential that w first may be cancelled that was mentioned in the in the uh, the white house the white house budget but we should note that pretty much all the previous budgets have been ignored by by congress so it's possible w first won't will still fly um which kind of makes sense because what else are we going to do with it? It's already built, right? It's just sitting around. It's an old Hubble that was my understanding that we were just donated well, I mean, by the military. It's not totally already built because if it was already built, we wouldn't be spending true. $3 billion on it, right? That's so true, there's got to be a lot of work still to do, I think. Yeah, good point. I guess the the, the frame the framework is there. Um, yeah. And you know, a, a lot of people are going to be very upset if, that doesn't, if it doesn't fly, um, and rightly so. I understand priorities are important, um, but this just seems to have taken everyone by a bit a surprise i think from what i've gauged um from folks i've spoken to i don't know how you how you guys have felt about this i feel like the focus on planetary exploration is kind of strange like because that because the nasa budget is remaining flat right but a lot of it is being diverted into this moon mission that it seems like every president wants to go back to the moon and recreate some uh, some of that uh late 1960s heyday um but they kind of fail <laughs> or they they put lots of money into but into plans and projects which get cancelled eventually so i i don't know yeah I, I feel like it's a short-term kind of goal that won't happen and that going for w first is is a much you know much much scientifically more important thing well i think that covers the new segment i had to write so we're good <laughs> <laughs> i i think it is that disconnect between the like the, the politician's term and the amount of time that it takes to get stuff done in space, right? Oh, it's been something that's been discussed at so many different NASA meetings and, and, you know, external scientific community meetings is how you are dictated by that four years and it's ridiculous that that's the case, which is why the decadals are so important to NASA and, and so important to kind of pushing science forward, certainly over here in America, 
because those decadals really dictate to Congress the next 10 years rather than the next four-year term. And that and that's really the focus of, of those decadals. And I think one of the reasons why I'm not so worried about W First is because it's in the decadal. It's, it's one of the necessities that it was pushed forward in the last one. It's a big focus of potentially the next one as well. So I... It's those decadals which are far more important than these financial reports, which have continuously in the past, it doesn't matter which president we've had, which party it is, have been bumped and pushed around and ignored. So, Yeah. And that's what people said, you know, it's it's in the decadal rated very highly. Um, and the disappointing thing is that, yes, it could be possible that it could just be stripped out. But, you know, what's the point in doing these decadals, putting all this effort in, soliciting community input, if it can just be cancelled, um, you know, with a decree from, from up above? But I think you're right, Hannah. It's, um, it's early days and we shouldn't worry about it just yet. What about you, Hugh? How, how's, how's exoplanet science in beautiful France? Yeah, it's good. I don't know if it's as beautiful as, as California. Like it's, uh, I I have been playing with neural networks. That's what I've spent the last couple of weeks doing. So, I've I've just been doing sort of tutorials and and making image recognition stuff. And, you know, I thought if you can't beat them, join them. And when when I say them, I mean the people who will inevitably create Skynet and, and destroy the planet. Ah, the data so, scientists. Um, yeah, I did a handwriting <laughs> recognition project um, just to see if I if I could as part of a Coursera. Um, oh cool and that was really fun um it's kind of scary as well how well it does after a little bit of training yeah i thought the work that goes into this it's never going to work um but so much of the work is not actually done by me (laughs) yeah um that's a really cool concept so how are you going to apply this or is this a spoiler Um, for an upcoming paper oh maybe i don't know yeah i'm just going to apply it to um the vetting of candidates for plato and, and maybe using kepler data to test it out but um yeah, because it's it's a, it'll be an interesting and quick way, I think, to to weed out the things that aren't planets from the things that are. Um, although I'm kind of sceptical that that's the way to do it, because it's a bit of a black box and you don't quite know why it's choosing this one's a planet and this one's not. So, um, so we'll see. But I've started applying that now. Right, should we kick it off with with your section, Andrew? Unless there's anything more to discuss. So this this month, Andrew's going to be talking a little bit about panspermia. So so what is panspermia, Andrew? Yeah, I want to go into a little bit of detail about this. It was one of the things that was actually recommended by uh, one of our followers on Twitter. Um, and I can't believe I hadn't talked about it before. Um, so it's one of those those concepts, if you've heard about it or you know a little bit about it, uh, it sounds a bit outlandish um, at first hearing, um, but maybe it actually isn't as bizarre, bizarre as it sounds, uh, as, you know, with a lot of stuff in space. Uh, well, I mean, it's still pretty out there, but, but we'll get to that. So, it, you know, the word is from the Greek, pass meaning all, and sperma meaning seed. And the general idea is that um, life can be transferred from one planet to another, either through chance, by accident, uh, or in the case of Superman, of course, through directed efforts by, you know, a life form to spread um, to another planet. So the idea of of panspermia uh, really arose during the the last century and actually had some pretty big um, supporters like Francis Crick, for example. Um, And it it kind of of came out in response to the realization that maybe the conditions on the early Earth where life could have evolved and originated were much less conducive to, uh, to life and its genesis than was once believed. 
So, you know, we were discovering the fact that there was this anoxic uh, atmosphere, anoxic, maybe acidic oceans, uh, this barren land surface uh, that was baking under this ultraviolet radiation. There was no you know, ozone layer and just this reducing atmosphere. So how could how could life have emerged and persisted and evolved in those conditions? Well, you know, one solution was, well, maybe it didn't. Maybe it came from somewhere else, um, you know, and. Nowadays, as we've learned a little bit more about the early Earth and maybe also a bit about life itself and its remarkable adaptability, this doesn't seem as much of an issue anymore. That you know, the possibility of a of a protobiosphere existing during the early Archean, like three point five, four four billion years ago, you know, doesn't seem quite as unlikely uh, now as it did maybe then. Uh, especially given you know we've got some microfossil and biomarker evidence as well. So, I'll caveat this while with saying that I don't think there's much evidence to support the claim that life on Earth originated elsewhere. I still think there's some there's some value in, in thinking about some of the issues that panspermia raises, even if we're looking at it just from maybe a planetary protection standpoint. Um, so we can break down some of the mechanisms involved and look at, you know, kind of the feasibility of each one in turn, and maybe, you know, learn some things uh, along the way as well. So I think we can agree it's certainly possible that material can be ejected from the surface of a planet uh, onto an interplanetary uh, trajectory uh, on orbit, and then um, and then land on another on land on another planet. Uh, we know this because um, you know we've got a quite a back catalogue of Martian meteorites that have been recovered on Earth that have taken a journey like this, and suggests at least one possible interplanetary causeway for life in our solar system at least. Um, so we can assume that maybe this also happens in other solar systems, but I'll I'll get to that later. So impacts like um, impacts that are going to generate enough uh, enough energy to kind of eject loads of material into space are um, are likely going to be uh, oblique, you know, kind of hitting the planet maybe a few degrees uh, off the local horizontal, which will then liberate a lot of material from the near surface, which fortunately for the theory, but unfortunate for pretty much all the life in bound up in that in that area is that this is the biologically active zone as well. So, you know, the impactor is also hitting an area uh, or volume of, of the planet that could contain life. Certainly if it was the, the present Earth, you know, there's going to be life in in all of that regolith um, so should any unfortunate organisms be bound up in that material that is then ejected into space the process of ejection itself presents a huge number of challenges which i'm sure you can already think of a few of them um, so we have extreme pressure extreme temperature um, extreme acceleration uh, so it's going to undergo significant levels of shock heating uh, pressure and drag heating um, as it passes through the atmosphere uh, to reach space um, so that said, there is some theoretical work that's proposed a temporary rupture in the atmosphere caused by the entry of the preceding impact that would actually make it a lot easier for stuff to get out. You know, it'd be a low friction kind of hold in the atmosphere, which is one potential way of making things easier in terms of escaping. But even that, um, laboratory experiments looking at the uh, you know extreme conditions that are involved in this process um, indicated that even if you subject uh, organisms in similar material uh, to acceleration about 2.5, maybe even up to 25 times greater than would be expected um, or experienced by that material. Survival rates for bacterial spores can still be between 40 and 100%. So just that in itself doesn't necessarily write off the process. So, so for our hardy bacteria that have managed to survive this ejection process into space, that's not the end of the story. There's still this long journey through the vacuum of interplanetary space yet ahead. Um, 
Now, for the for the Mars Earth orbital highway, which is the best you know the best studied one, um, this trip could take between ten thousand and a hundred million years, depending on you know how that material is ejected and to what orbit it's put onto. Um, so, uh, Monte Carlo analysis suggests that maybe only zero point one percent of Martian meteorites make it to into the express lane to reach Earth in ten thousand years. So, you know that's that's the fast route, ten thousand years in space. Um, so. You know, for us, that might be the end of the tale, but extremophile bacteria recovered from permafrost in Alaska uh, and also, incidentally, capable of surviving in space if it's not entirely desiccated, um, has been shown to form viable populations after 32,000 years of dormancy, which is pretty impressive, <laughs> I think, and you know, puts that 10,000 year um, journey kind of into some perspective. In fact, we know now that bacteria is is very effective at surviving long periods of dormancy in space which is why nasa spends billions on planetary protection to ensure that you know these bacterial terrestrial bacterial species can't hitch a ride on our spacecraft into the outer solar system for example the actual the biggest danger to our micro astronauts now is uv radiation you know they're in space they're being bombarded by uv radiation which is going to prove lethal um over time but crucially, only to a depth of a few microns in most material, at most. Um, of course, you also have energetic particles from the sun and galactic cosmic rays, and those provide a lower dose with you know, greater penetration. But even then, it's still only maybe uh, centimeters, 10 centimeters or so of rock. It's all you need for a decent radiation shield. Um, and I, I guess that one centimeter on the outside is also the bit that gets fried when it lands back on Earth, right? So exactly. that's not really... Uh... Yeah, it's going to be anything on the surface is probably going to have been destroyed on the way out uh, as well. Uh, you know, so it's the stuff on the outside that's that's going to take most of the uh, the beating from this. And you know, over time, that's going to be um, affected as well by the, uh, the environment of interplanetary space. It becomes redder, uh, you know, it becomes ionized and oxidized as well. So the outside, the crust, not a good place. But inside, everything could be great. And uh, there's some experiments on the ISS that have looked into this actually using Bacillus subtilis spores. Um, and with a bit of adequate, adequate shielding, you know, perhaps maybe certainly a meter of rock, it would be possible for a viable population of those of organisms like that in a dormant state to persist for 10,000 years at least. Um, but still, that's not the end of the story. As, as Hugh hinted to, there's still the landing to come. Uh, and the arrival of the um, impactor comes with much fanfare and explosions and heat and destruction. Um, so after possibly hundreds of thousands of years in space, our dormant organisms must now survive entry into the atmosphere, impact onto the surface of a planet and release. Uh, and of course, environmental factors are now playing an important role in, in determining their survivability because the destination also has to be habitable for them you know um and of course any potential native inhabitants have to be friendly or at least not able to out compete with uh, compete our, our new arrivals so again we could look to lab experiments to to try and get a handle on how likely it is for organisms to survive these experiences um and uh, essentially some really cool ones using these enormous air cannons that fire pellets of different materials into other different materials sometimes that material has life in it um, and it's shown actually that the shock and the pressure and the temperatures all experienced during this impact probably does prove fatal to the majority of the organisms in the impactor but again that's the thing with bacteria it doesn't have to be uh, it, you know it doesn't have to be um, 
as long as a small proportion of those organisms survive, um, then you know, the population can still colonize the surface. That's the great thing about, about bacteria. They're very hardy and they persist. So a quick summary is that for successful panspermia to occur, microorganisms bound up in rock would have to be able to survive uh, an initial impact event into a biologically active area, the extreme forces associated with ejection and planetary escape, uh, a significant duration spent in the vacuum of interplanetary space, and eventually re-entry and impact onto another planet in an area that's also habitable. Uh, and then, of course, even if it is habitable, those organisms may potentially have to compete with an indigenous biosphere that's better adapted to the local environment. So it seems panspermia is a game of astronomically small probabilities and failure is near certain, you know, if this ever did occur. But with billions of years to play around with and billions of planets to bombard, it's certainly a, a non-zero chance, at least. Uh, the major problem for me about panspermia is that it doesn't actually tell us anything about the origin of life. It just it just shifts the stage from Earth to another place, uh, Mars, for example, or an asteroid or comet. So uh, it's interesting, but we're no closer to understanding how life arises. And any evidence, of course, that could be used to support the panspermia hypothesis is likely to have been weathered away or subducted into the Earth's crust like billions of years ago. That said, there are still papers that are being produced looking at the possibility of interplanetary transfer, uh, including one very recently that I think I touched on in Exocast a few episodes ago, uh, focusing on the um, on the packed M-star system, TRAPPIST-1. Um, so this is uh, an interesting case, uh, not just because of its proximity to the Sun and the general Earth-likeness of some of its planets, but also because the planets are very much closer together compared to the solar system, which means that those those um, transfer rates or the time it takes for material to be transferred is much is, is much less, maybe two orders of magnitude uh, less. It might just take hundreds of years or thousands of years as opposed to tens to millions of years. Um, and I think we have to be honest that discussions of this nature are really just you know, a bit of fun right now. A thought experiment that's like three degrees removed from the actual realities of our knowledge of that system in terms of TRAPPIST-1. But in terms of comparative planetology or just looking at the differences between different solar systems, it might be able to tell us something interesting. You know, what if things were slightly different in the solar system if things were slightly more packed dynamically and life could be transferred? Well, you know, what could that tell us? And I guess Panspermia's biggest PR moment in recent history that you guys probably are aware of as well came in 1996 when a group of scientists claimed that they had found evidence of microscopic fossils of bacteria-like life in the Martian meteorite ALH84001, which was discovered in Allen Hills in Antarctica in 1984. Now, this is like an infamous study in astrobiology um, because ultimately the structures seen in Allen Hills meteorite were considered to be non-biogenic in origin. Um, or maybe even introduced later by contamination, but the story still continues to develop. There's been a lot of arguments one way or the other about it. Um, and as recently as 2009, the original authors of the 96 paper were still um, claiming you know, further evidence for Martian life by noting the morphological similarities between structures in the meteorite and, and those of, of, of simple life on the Earth. Um, but the majority of science, scientists remained unconvinced because, frankly, bacteria, you know, 
it's quite easy for for biological mechanisms to make stuff that looks like bacteria because they don't look like much <laughs> um you know little capsules little, little pustules um and i think that's the issue is that even finding divini- definitive proof which is going to be unlikely if not impossible of of some sort of convincing fossilized alien life still doesn't prove that one life on earth originated from a similar rock or you know that life on earth is related to the life in that particular rock certainly it could suggest that maybe it's easy for bacteria like life to get going even in super tough conditions which bolsters the chance of finding more many you know more planets with life out there but the standard for proof for those discoveries is and probably should still remain incredibly incredibly high <laughs> to avoid you know sensationalism so I, I think it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting co- concept that probably won't go away, but it probably teaches us more about us than about the origin of life. Because sometimes we want these overly convoluted explanations for events, you know, because we think we're special or you know we can't really gauge the likelihood of this, um, or perhaps we just really like the idea that we're aliens and that's why nothing really makes sense here and everything's so weird. Um, but you know, who knows? Am I right in thinking that we didn't know that we had on Earth material from other planets until we went to other planets and looked at the difference in the materials themselves? So it wasn't until we went to Mars and Venus that we knew that some of the meteorites we actually had were from other planets. Yeah. So even confirming that any rock on Earth is from another planet, you have to go to the other one in the first place. <laughs> That's very true. And actually, that's another reason why the Allen Hills meteorite is a bit weird, because it doesn't really fit into any of the kind of classes of Martian meteorites as they stand at the moment. So a lot of people are like, well, we're not even entirely convinced it's from Mars. Um, could it, it could be an Earth meteorite, right? I mean, <laughs> some of them get kicked off Earth and then end up back here, That's right? true. I mean, it, it, at the events you were talking about, if they're sputtering things into space, some of that could exactly. refall back down. Yeah. I guess there's an isotopic difference, which is easy to... Wow. Yeah. tell maybe i don't know potentially but that could also be altered by you know the pressure and the shock heating and any time spent in in space that could ionize and the depth at which it came from because all of our our measurements of that is from very upper layers of the crust we don't have anything from deep within the earth where the, the ratios might be completely different anyway and therein lies all of the issues with this wow we know nothing that's what we learned from this segment <laughs> we know nothing <laughs> I was thinking about, because I, I kind of agree that panspermia is less weird than it seems when you look at the, the probabilities of life surviving and stuff. But and, and especially between Earth and Mars, because these two planets have probably both had water on the surface at the same time, which is interesting. But I was wondering, like, can you can you get, can you seed Europa's oceans or can Europa's oceans seed inner planets? Because that seems a bit more protected, a bit more isolated from the rest of the solar system. What, like, um, in terms of the time that's going to be required, or just the mechanisms of ejection? Yeah, can 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 you eject life from the ocean under 20 kilometres of ice? I, I, it seems unlikely. Yeah, that seems unlikely. I don't know. Uh, in terms of getting it here as well, I have to speak to some dynamicist about that. Does it seem likely that, you know, any material from there? Well... Going back the other way, certainly, we're super careful and super worried about any Europa missions, you know, Europa Clipper missions yeah. or, or, or landers or whatever they're going to call them, submarines, um, because of the potential for, you know, contaminating that environment with, with bacterial life from the Earth. Um, so can it go the other way? Yes. Um, it could probably come this way as well, but I, I really don't know. And whether it survived or not. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, I think 
it's time to move on to something a little bit more certain. And Hugh's going to talk to us about phase curve analysis of exoplanets. Yeah, that's right. So you may have heard the phrase phase curve before. And I thought I'd demystify what it means and what it lets us measure and, and, and what we've kind of done in this area of exoplanetary science. So um, over the orbit of any celestial body, basically, the amount of sunlight shining on the hemisphere, which we are able to observe, changes. And the most obvious example of this is, is with the moon. So the moon waxes and wanes between different phases from new moon, where there's no sunlight on the side that's facing us, to full moon, where the entire surface is sunlit. And actually, at the dawn of the telescope, astronomers also observed the waxing and waning of Venus's hemispheres, Venus's phases, which was a key piece of ev evidence in the transition from uh, geocentrism to heliocentric universe. Um, so basically, by measuring the light coming from these bodies over the course of each orbit, we can build up a phase curve, which is how the light changes because of this changing illumination of, of, of a planet. And so now we've been able to, to see the same waxing and waning effect on exoplanets. Um, but because we observe both the light of the planet and the star at the same time, this effect is really minuscule, even for the biggest and, and, and most uh, amenable planets, with changes of only a few parts per million each orbit. But if we can measure this effect, then there's a wealth of information there that we can learn about the planets and their atmospheres and, and their dynamics. For example, as in the solar system planets, the, the dominant source of the phase curve of an exoplanet is in reflected starlight from the surface of the planet. And this means that the amplitude of the phase curve, i.e. the difference between when it's, the planet is full and when it is new, um, which uh, it's full at just before or after secondary eclipse, so when it passes behind the star, if it's a transiting system, and it's new, effectively, when it's passing directly between us and the star, so that's when transit happens. But this difference, this amplitude in the phase curve tells us how reflective the planet is, how, how much the surface is reflecting the starlight back to us. And we can then measure the albedo and tell us something about the composition of these worlds or, or what's in the atmospheres. And we find that for these hot worlds that we've studied so far, exoplanets really aren't that reflective. They're pretty dark. So the Earth has an albedo of about 0.3 and Venus is up at 0.7. And the planets we've studied so far have albedo something like 0.1, so they only reflect 10% of the light that's hitting their surface. Uh, indivisible, this is. Although some planets have exceptionally reflective surfaces, so the hot super-Earth Kepler-10b seems to have an albedo of about 0.6, so that's more Venus-like than, than any of the other planets we've studied. And in fact, another quite cool thing we could do with phase curves in Kepler is we can find planets that don't transit this way. So there was a paper by Sarah Milholland last year, and they found 60 candidate planets which don't transit, but there's this phase curve effect in the light from the star that seems to be linked to, uh, likely linked to a non-transiting hot Jupiter, which is pretty cool. But for hot planets, or for observations in the infrared, the planets are effectively hot enough to glow themselves. And this thermal radiation contributes somewhat to the phase curve. So measuring this tells us precisely how hot the planet is. But also another thing we could do is, is measure where each planet is, is brightest on its surface. So most planets have strong winds that blow around the planet and distribute heat and material around. And these climate models we've run for exoplanets also suggest that this wind should blow in the same direction around most hot and tidally locked planets from the west to the east, so like an eastward wind. And we do see this in the data, actually. So for hot planets, the thermal heat gets blown from the day side to the night side and heats up the effectively evening side of the planet. 
So this means that the, off, the, the peak of the phase curve happens before secondary eclipse. Whereas in visible light and for cold planets or planets with lots of clouds, you get a lot more reflection and this dominates the phase curve. And we see the, this eastward wind is blowing cool air from the, the night side to the day side. And this cool air has in it clouds which eventually evaporate in the sunshine from the star. And this extra reflection on the morning side of the, the planet basically means the phase curve is shifted after the secondary eclipse, so eastward or west, eastward. That's right. It's kind of hard to visualize east and west when you're thinking about a planet. And so this means that phase curves give us an insight into the average climate of these planets. And in fact, thanks to some observations from Kepler, we even get some insight into the weather. So Hat P7b, which is a hot Jupiter observed by Kepler, the phase curve of this seems to shift around over time. Well, this is a paper that I, I was part of actually, and we think that this is because the weather patterns on the in the atmosphere. Um, change the balance between that cloud-dominated weather, where this high reflect reflection um, puts the phase curve before secondary eclipse, and then a sort of clear sky um, heat-dominated weather, where the phase curve shifts to after secondary eclipse. And also another thing we can do with phase curves is because these phase curves change with wavelength, they can also allow us to probe the structure in three dimensions of the atmosphere as longer wavelength radiation comes from deeper layers and might be, might be um, shifted a different amount and reveal, therefore, the strength of the winds throughout the atmosphere. However, we've only so far observed this effect with a handful of hot Jupiters and only in a handful of wavelengths. But in the future, James Webb is going to observe dozens more to an unparalleled degree of precision. So we could, we've got a lot to look forward to in this sort of area of, of exoplanetary science. That was certainly an interesting, it was a nice look at everything because there's so much that we can learn and it's really nice that we can do this technique without the need for a transiting planet because there's so many planets that have been discovered that are not transiting and that population really doesn't get a huge amount of follow-up and it's it's one of the ways that we can get this follow-up that we desperately need for a, a, a wider selection of planets out there. I don't think that's been done yet. I don't think no non-transiting hot Jupiters have had their phase curves. There's a couple yet. that have. It's mostly Spitzer stuff, so it's the thermal rather than the reflected light. Oh yeah. So the thermal light is is much easier for us to do in the infrared, like you said. And James Webb's really going to expand that as well. But there's a couple of eccentric planets which have been done this way, and that's another really yep. important point is that the eccentric ones you need to look at the phase curve to really understand how an atmosphere reacts to such a shock so there's a number of different things that you can use the phase curves for where we just can't get that information any other way yeah i'd forgotten about those studies actually yeah it's interesting spitz has been great so far at, at phase curve stuff because it can continuously stare in, in in pretty far infrared bands at these planets and and build up the phase curve I mean, it's really impressive that um, we can, we're at the point where we can nearly start determining weather patterns on hot Jupiters, where in terms of terrestrial exoplanets, we're not even sure we found one yet, <laughs> like a decent candidate. And you guys are looking at weather. Um, so, you know, from the terrestrial exoplanet community, I'm kind of, I'm a bit envious about you know, the dearth of information that can come with, um, that comes with the, the territory. It's really cool. I think it will come like as soon as we can get long time scale observations probably directly imaged observations of of terrestrial planets then we'll then we'll we'll be able to just look for variation in the in the signal and find find weather patterns and continents and stuff yeah. but exciting times yeah. 
Probably a few decades away, that, anyway. Right, so, what's been happening this month? We're going to find out by going across to Hannah's news desk, or Hannah's desk, which is is being uh, repurposed as a news desk, right? So, another month and another list of K2 planets, starting with some 100 validated and candidate planets orbiting bright stars from the K2 0 to 10 campaigns, all of which uh, will go to further observations and confirmations for those ones. So they're still just validated and candidate planets. K2 show up again. So they're up to K2-140b and K2-141b. 140 is an eccentric hot Jupiter on a 6.5 day orbit. And K2-141 actually has two planets, an ultra-short period rocky super-Earth and then a Neptune-esque planet that have been discovered around that K2 star. So they've got a super-Earth and a Neptune-esque planet, Su- arguably. Super-Earth and a Neptune-esque. The same thing, arguably. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so okay. we'll find out a bit more about those, I'm sure, because they seem to differentiate a little bit uh, on those two planets. Perhaps transit timing variations will allow us to get any constraints on their density. But K2 are not the only planet hunters out there, people. There are lots of other amazing ground-based surveys that are looking for planets. And there is a nearby Neptune orbiting M dwarf, HD 147879, and that was discovered by the Carmenes survey, C-A-R-M-E-N-E-S. This is an RV survey, which is looking at 300 nearby M stars. Uh, and this planet was first detect- was the first planet that's been detected by that survey. The survey actually appeared again this month with a closer look at seven M dwarfs that they're studying and looking at updating their orbital parameters, understanding how the stars actually uh, are active and what kind of periods we would be expecting from the stars themselves. So getting all of this really important stellar information about these M stars is one of the, the aims of this survey as well. So hopefully more planets coming from them in the future. The Qatar Exoplanet Survey discovered its sixth exoplanet, Qatar 6 I covered these things last month. <laughs> I covered Carmenes' first planet and K2141 and Qatar 6. <laughs> I need to listen to our own podcast then because I didn't... <laughs> I thought this sounded familiar. Maybe because I only looked for published papers. Now they're all actually published rather than just being papers. Um just announcements when know. he was covering them a, a, a rumor in a pub where is enough uh, you know that's that's huge journalistic standard over there my <laughs> no it has to be peer right, archive is fine come on um okay but i don't know what the hell i've talked about on the news that you've already covered already okay what's the next one <laughs> the next one hat south 53rd oh planet. yeah i covered that <laughs> four planets right there we go we're done with that one kelt kelt 21 yeah Have you got my notes? This is really weird. Well, Hugh's news was so long last time that I'm sure there's nothing he hasn't covered that's happening (laughs) in the world. All right. What about characterization? Have we talked about characterization of the emission spectra of some hot Jupiters? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) No news this week, everybody. It's been a really great month. Uh, Everybody just keep writing those papers. Send them to Hugh at... uh, For all the news for this month, just listen to last month's podcast. Go listen to Exocast 21B. <laughs> well, here we go. Let's talk about some open source data. 
We're going to kick it off by talking about uh, Goyle and the collaboration who've produced a library of open source exoplanet models for the transmission spectra of 117 known and characterizable exoplanets. Each planet uh, has a grid of 3,920 models specifically calculated for that planet, and they vary in parameters for the C to O ratio, metallicity, cloudiness, haziness, and temperature. All of these models are available to download and use via the University of Exeter website, bd-serve.astro.ex.ac.uk slash exoplanets. And good luck if you want to remember that. A note to all people doing open source data, please, please put it on a URL that is easy to remember and direct people to. Please make your websites Googleable. Yeah. But that's going to be really useful if you're planning any James Webb or Hubble observations in the future. But sticking to some spectra, ExoMol have come out with a new hot line list for silicon monohydride, SIH. And that is also available for everybody to download and use and add to their atmospheric simulations. If you are simulating exoplanet atmospheres, including these hot line lists is really important. And then moving on from this gas phase chemistry to some condensates, uh, Daniel Kitzman published an extended list of condensates for giant uh, planet atmospheres, including various carbon-based species. This paper explores the optical properties in use for calculations in the spectra, and all of the data in the paper is also available, as well as the code that they use to develop and calculate the Mi coefficients for all of these condensates, and that's available to download on their ExoClimb GitHub page. Now, finally, as we already hinted at at the beginning, and I don't think Hugh's already covered this one, TESS mission has been bumped back to no earlier than April 16th for launch and no later than June 2018. So at some point between April 16th and June this year, TESS will launch. That is seems to be their certainty. Whether or not that is the case, uh, we'll find out. No, I think I th apparently it's at um, Kennedy Space Center now doing tests. So it looks like it's... Uh it should be it should be go in April, or if not April, then May. Excellent. Now, very short segment, riddled with things that we covered in the last podcast. But when I did my my nice little search on ADS, there was two hundred and seventy papers that came up just from February, and those were peer reviewed papers that have been published. So that is an amazing volume of exoplanet studies that are coming out across the interdisciplinary fields. So keep up the good work. We can't cover it all. So to finish off this month's show, Hugh is going to adopt a planet into our little family. Who have we got? It is Kepler-167e, which I'm sure hasn't been proposed before, but it is an interesting planet because it is uh, the longest period planet found by Kepler. So it is... Unlike almost all of the planets found by Kepler, it is a cold Jupiter on a 1071, which is just shy of three-year orbit, um, with an equilibrium temperature of 130 Kelvin. So this is a minus 140 degrees Celsius. I mean, Kepler's pretty pretty well known for finding lots of hot planets with, you know, smouldering atmospheres of, and lava and all of this. So this is this is probably the coldest one that's been confirmed, at least. So way colder than Jupiter, which is about 150 degrees kelvin 
Um, slightly smaller than Jupiter as well, so about 0.9 times the radius of Jupiter. Um, and it's, it's, it's around a smaller star than the Sun as well, so if I can find the details. Crushing it. <laughs> Shut up. Um, it is the, the furthest out planet of a five-planet system as well, so it's got four inner planets, a little bit like Jupiter and, and the four inner planets uh, interior to it. But I think it's really cool because it's, yeah, it's the coldest planet that, that Kepler has confirmed. Although there's a few more with the one transit in the, uh, in the Kepler light curves, which might be much longer period giant planets as well. But this one happens to transit twice um, near the start and near the end of, of the Kepler's four-year mission. So, Thank you um, for that. I was going to ask. It, did, it wasn't making sense in my head, but that makes just 100% logical sense. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't so it, get there. <laughs> So the first transit was about 200 days in and the last one was was just 50 days before it it, it lost its or second reaction wheel. So they're quite lucky to get that that second transit actually. So it's I guess because it's so cold it's going to be really difficult to um, get much more information from this using any other techniques that we have. What are the chances for follow up or learning more about this planet in future? Yeah, so if you're looking at transmission spectroscopy, then then yeah, you need a hot temperature basically to to improve the scale height and improve the, the the signal you'll get from any atmosphere. So there's almost no hope of seeing anything in transmission. It's also quite a faint star. And I guess it's far too cold for direct imaging. I think the star's too far away for direct imaging. Ah. If if you had something like W first, oh, little tear. And it was around a nearby star, um, then you could certainly probably image it because it, it will get down to to cold Jupiters, I think. Um, but maybe Gaia. Gaia might find it. That might be interesting. We might get a mass from Gaia. There you go. Not for a while. Not till twenty twenty one, of course. Yeah, because yeah, you're going to need like really good precision on that one. So thank you for joining us for another instalment of Exocast. We'll be back next month with another episode and regular listeners may notice a slight change in our format in that from now on, we'd like to invite some guests to join us on the sofa in the Exocast studio for a quick chat about life and exoplanets and everything in between. So please do join us for that. In the meantime, you can find our back catalogue at exocast.org or on iTunes. Uh, Please check us out, like us, follow us, comment at us on Twitter at exo underscore cast and on Facebook too. Uh, Until then, keep looking up. Bye. See ya. Goodbye. Exocast. I like the way our sofa spans 10 time zones. Shall I wrap this dumpster fire up? <laughs> this is why I hate doing the f-ing news. I don't give a shit about any of this. That should be right at the end of the podcast. If everyone, if you make it all the way to the end and we say goodbye and there's just a little bit of Hannah saying, I don't f-ing care about any of this. <laughs> what the f*** is happening? My brains have melted. Guys, we've upped the level of professionalism this episode. Can you take out the bits where I swear too much, please? Exocast. Exocast.